if that block of wood, uh, if the block of wood could talk, what would it say? Would it say, uh, boy, that hurt. Um, But it was worth it. Because I'm far better uh, after the whittling experience than I had ever imagined I would be. I wonder if the block of wood would say I I had my doubts. Uh, But I found out I was in the hands of a master whittler who had always in his mind, though I didn't see it, this intention to, not to destroy me, but to deliver me uh, unto something much, much better. Uh, Dear friends, I think you know where I'm going If you are a Christian, you are in the process of being whittled, and it really hurts. Uh, By definition, it's a a bit of a violent process, the cutting away of those things which are in the way. But this seems to be the normal Christian life, and though it is painful, this process of uh, transformation, it's worth it. And to be in the hands of the master transformer, that's the Lord Jesus, is really a great privilege and a great honor. And the outcome will be absolutely marvelous. The Bible tells us that one day he will present us before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And you say, far-fetched. No, because we're in the hands of of the master transformer. And again, though this is a difficult process, growing, uh, from which we have growing pains, still it it is far better to be being transformed and to be in the process of growing far better than to be stuck. And this is what we'll speak about tonight in the book of Hebrews, the letter of better The transforming process is difficult and oftentimes painful, uh, but being transformed into the image of Almighty God is a far better option, uh, far better than being stuck. And we will see this, I think, dramatically brought out in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 uh, to 19. That will be our text tonight. But before we get there, I want to mention the name of someone who will be the key character in the text. We've been introduced to him already in Hebrews 11, Avraham, Abraham. And who Abraham ended up being was a far cry from whom Abraham once was. He was changed, he was transformed, and became a giant follower of the otherwise unseen God, and all this by faith. You remember what happened with him. Verse 8 tells us about it. God told him, move. Doesn't sound like much, but it is. Think about it. Uh, Abraham had not seen this God. He knew of him for sure, but not that much. And this God of whom Abraham had an elementary experience was asking him, this unseen God, to go to an unseen place. So this is a big move. He's asking, no, he's commanding Abraham 
to leave behind the old and familiar and to venture out into the new and unfamiliar. This is a very taxing, stressful experience for anybody here. Where are you going? I don't know. How will things work out? I have no idea. Why don't you just stay put? Because it's better to grow, it's better to move, it's better to be transformed than to be stuck. So here God comes upon Abraham and makes him a promise requiring Abraham to take God at his word. That's not so easy. God said, I'm going to bring you to a place. It's not just real estate. It's your future. Not just yours. It's for your ancestors. No, no, no. Not just theirs. From your people group and from that place will come the Messiah who will suffer and die for the sins of all people. There's a lot at stake here. And so Abraham, the text tells us, by faith obeyed, trusting God for this move and finding out that God indeed was trustworthy. God came through in the journey when he arrived at the destination, while he traveled throughout the destination, he found out that God could be trusted to guide and to provide. God brought him to this place of promise. God kept his word. And this Abraham, who, well, he didn't have blind faith. I wouldn't put it that way. But it was surely a developing faith. It wasn't fully matured at this point. Nonetheless, had the experience in seeing God keep his word. He had the experience of seeing his faith mature just a little bit more. He was getting to the point where, having trusted God for this, it's big. Would you do it? Get up and move. Go to a place. Where, God? I'll tell you, but not now. Oh, my. Abraham did it and found out, my goodness, I don't have to be in possession of all the facts. I do not have to have sovereignty over my future. I have to know that this God who does is trustworthy. And this experience really transformed Abraham somewhat, but not all the way just yet. So then God said something else. Another challenge to Abraham's faith. He said, Abraham... Um, I'm going to give you a son through Sarah, your wife. And this is going to be a son of much promise. Your line of descendancy will go from you, Abraham, to him, Isaac, and on. And I'm going to do redemptive things through that line of descent. And that is... That is overwhelming. However, there was a problem. Actually, two. Abraham at the time was 100 years old. Problem number one. Uh, problem number two, his wife was 90. And barren and past childbearing years. So this promise of God, for them to be able to produce progeny, future hope. Wow, pretty tough. And they had ups and downs in the comprehending and 
laying hold of the promise, but ultimately they did. And I think their prior experience was an incentive to believing God for this. Prior experience being, Abraham, did I not keep my word to you with regard to the move? From the old and familiar to the new and unfamiliar. There were fears. Did you find out they were not justifiable? Uh, did you find out that your faith brought reward? By faith, Abraham, did you not find out that I'll keep my word? And I think that gave them an incentive now. See, they're being transformed. They're growing. And they managed to believe God for this in spite of their biological limitations. And so we actually see their faith in this regard in verses 11 and 12. By faith, even Sarah... Now, she's the first woman to be mentioned in this faith honor roll, chapter 11. Even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him, God, faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, that's Abraham, and him as good as dead, that is to say, dead as far as the capacity to produce children, as good as dead at that, as many descendants, and now a quotation from Genesis, as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. What requires more faith to believe God for a, a child at these extremely advanced years and past the point of child rearing or to trust God for a move to the old and unfamiliar. I think the way God tests us is to give us faith challenges uh, that measure up to what we know of him. No test beyond our ability to deal with it. So they were able to trust God for the move. That enhanced their capacity to trust God for now this bigger test. Oh God, we're looking to our Bodies in their aged for crying out loud. Nobody has a baby at this point, but we can believe you for it if that's what you say. And in fact, uh, they birth the baby and rejoice, and everything is going really well. And then God says, Abraham, that child, Isaac, Yitzchak, that child of promise, I want him, offered as a sacrifice unto death. Wood, fire, knife. I want you to administrate the procedure with regard to your own son. Give me him. How could God, out of the blue, require such a thing? He didn't. It was not out of the blue. Do you recall the first faith test God Abraham was faith to move? It's big, but not that big. He saw God come through. The second faith test, bigger. Can you believe me to give you future hope? even at this advanced stage of your life. That is to say to birth a child, bigger. They believed God. 
And God fulfilled his promise. And now this. He wasn't out of the blue. By far, it's the biggest test imaginable, not for Abraham alone, but for any of us. But God didn't subject Abraham to it out of the blue. Don't you see? He's being transformed. Just a block of wood, not very attractive, and many rough edges. And this is chipped away, and that is chipped away. And what comes out in the process of refinement and purification is more and more capacity to trust the unseen yet very present God for bigger and bigger and bigger things. And so God, not out of the blue, but at this point in Abraham's faith journey, tests him. And we read about it in Genesis 22. I'll just read a little. Now it came about after these things. What things? Smooth sailing. Frankly, everything was going pretty good. And then God intervenes. It came about after these things that God tested Abraham. By the way, the word tested is in a tense which indicates it doesn't happen once. It indicates it's habitual. The whittling goes on until the finished product emerges. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Hineni. It's a big word in the Bible. Hineni. It means here I am. Listen, you want to be really careful that you stay sufficiently close to God that when he calls, your immediate response is, Hineni, here I am. Not, I didn't hear you because I've drifted. Stay close so that when God calls, you hear and can answer. Hineni, says he, here I am. And God said, take now your son, your only son. In saying it, God knows. Your only son, whom you love, Isaac. And go to the land of Moriah, Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 now, tells us Abraham did it. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up, does your Bible say, his only begotten son. Have you heard that before? His only, keep it in mind. His only begotten, could you do this? Could you do what is required of Abraham? How could you do this? How could Abraham do this? Not out of the blue. That's how. He is walking with God. He's watching God carefully. And he's seeing God work. And as he sees God work, He's being transformed. He may not notice it, but he's moving forward. It's not because it's his idea. It's God's idea. I'll pick up that piece of wood. I chose it. I don't ask for its permission. I will conform it into my own image because I choose to. The wood, if it could talk, may object. Ouch! Why? What are you doing? Where am I going? Leave me alone. I'm fine the way I am. And the whittler doesn't ask for the wood's counsel. The master whittler just whittles away, whittles away. And Abraham saw it hurts. 
It stretches me. It's incomprehensible. But at the end of it all, you keep your word. I can trust you for this. And so by faith, Abraham passes the test. Oh, God didn't require his son of him out of the blue and right away. First, he required Abraham move, meaning do you trust me enough to give up your past? You know what God is saying now? Do you trust me enough to give up your future? A child is a parent's future, especially in this case, the child of redemptive promise. Can you trust me? For Abraham said, I can, and I will. Abraham passed the test by growing confidence in the trustworthiness of Almighty God. Now I have to stop here. Because if you're like me, you're saying, I cannot relate to this guy. This guy is categorically different. He's like a giant-sized, he's a human, but he's like a supersized human, faith-wise. And I'm like a puny human, faith-wise. I want to persuade you that that's not true and that you are, and me too, exactly like Abraham. And here's how I'm going to do it. I want to show you that Abraham's marvelously developed faith was not always that way. He's being transformed. He's growing into it. And so I want to show you some of his faith failures. I don't want to speak ill of the deceased. We shouldn't do that. By the way, he's no longer deceased. Uh, there's resurrection. But anyway, I, I, I don't want to speak ill of him as an end in itself. I just want to bring him down to earth. He's just a flesh and blood human like you and me. And along the way, we, we fall a lot. So in Genesis chapter 12, there's famine in the land of Canaan, the land of promise. God says, go to this place, land flowing with milk and honey. I'll take care of you. Everything will be cool. And now there's no food. So what does Abraham do? He goes south to Egypt. And in so doing, the implication is essentially, God, I do not believe you can provide for me in this place of promise, so I will remove myself from the sphere of your promise, and I'll take myself to Egypt. I have to meet my own needs because you won't. Then on the way, he says to his wife, Sarah, you're pretty good looking. That's why I married you. That part I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but that's essentially behind it. And uh, if I see you to be good looking, it uh, is probably likely that others will as well. You're a beautiful woman, and when we get to Egypt, people there will want to take you for their own. And therefore, out of respect and courtesy to me, I just want to ask you to do this little thing, just for me. Don't take it personally. I'm sure you'll understand. While we're in Egypt, could you just tell people you're not my wife, you're my sister? Are you kidding me? Hey, we have a word in Hebrew, it's called chutzpah. Chutzpah means, are you kidding me? Gall. You ask your, this is what you ask, anyway, this is what, this is what Abraham, the father of faith, do you know the three monotheistic religions of the world all revere Abraham as the father of faith? In Judaism, he's revered that way. In Islam, he's revered that way. In Christianity, he's revered. This is like the giant. 
This is the giant saying, I don't believe God to feed me in the place of promise I got to go to Egypt. This is the father of faith who's saying, I don't believe God to protect me and my wife. I will uh, 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 prompt her to lie on my behalf and put herself at great sexual risk, don't you think? So that's what he does, Genesis 12. What a faith failure. But he got over it quick, right? No. A few years later, he did it again. Again. Genesis chapter 20, there's another guy named the king of Gerar. Abraham pulls the same stunt. And he persuades Sarah once again to masquerade as his sister rather than as his wife. This is Abraham, the man of faith. But I'm telling you, it's a bumpy ride until we get to the point where we can trust God more and more and more. There are faith failures. You want to hear a big one? Here's his, I think, biggest faith failure. Now, it came as a result of the prompting of his wife, but still, he didn't have to give in. It's recorded in Genesis chapter 16. She said, I'm dying. I need to produce children. I can't, but my handmaid, Hagar, can. I want you to go into her and father a child through her so that we could have a future and a hope. Abraham says, okay. You know, I'm getting more and more comfortable with Abraham. We are really bringing him. We, I, he's not any supersized anything. He's me and he's you. He's just a block of wood. Uh, and it isn't much about him. It's about whose hands he's in before anything good could be produced. And so he fathers a child through Hagar, and the child's name, do you know the child's name? Yeah, Ish, Ishmael is, is who, who he produces. And uh, that is not a good thing. He essentially says, God, you promised me good stuff. I want to help you out. So, so I'll contribute to the cause. So he fathers the child through uh, Hagar, and it is Ishmael. And I don't have to tell you, down to this very, you know, there's always a consequence for operating outside the will of God. Don't you know that? Down to this very day, the descendants of Ishmael and Isaac are at war with one another, Right? Down to this very day. See, it's a spiritual conflict in the Middle East. The reason why politicians can't solve it is that it's not a political issue. It's a spiritual issue. And because they ain't so spiritual, they're part of the problem, not the solution. But anyway, you see it, right? So anyway, these, the descendants of Ishmael and Isaac are in conflict with one another. Uh, down to this, down to this, here's my point. As with Abraham, so too with us, we're the same. Faith grows as we walk with God and watch him work. That's how it is. It's a marvelous, marvelous experience, and it hurts, and it's challenging. It's a little fearful, but it's far better than being stuck. So by faith, Abraham, verse 17, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his 
only begotten son. But wait, I think I found an error in the Bible because Isaac was in fact not his only begotten son. We just spoke about Ishmael, right? How could Isaac be the only begotten son when in fact he has two sons? This Ishmael, ah, it means unique and one of a kind. In what sense was Isaac unique? God said the line of promise will go through Isaac, not Ishmael, through Isaac, you see? He's the child of promise, not Ishmael. He's the only begotten child of promise. So verse 18 says, it was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. Now, those are not my words, right? That's what God said. It's in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. So I want to pause for a second just to tell you the uh, Quran says it differently. The Quran is the holy book of Islam. Some, even maybe here, are tempted to put the Bible and the Quran on the same level. Some are prone to say all roads lead to Rome, heaven. You take this way, I take that way. You go through Jesus, I go through Allah, Moses. Whatever the deal is, all religions are their good points and bad points. You know this stuff? They all say the same. Well, tell me if this is the same. Uh, this book, the Bible, says in Hebrews, invoking a, a passage in Genesis, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. That's what the Bible says. But the Quran says the line of promise is not through Isaac, it is through Ishmael. Now, I don't want to send anyone out hating anybody, but you can't be permitted the luxury of thinking all religions say the same thing and therefore fit in. You're not going to fit in if you take a stand on the biblical narrative because it is entirely different than what the Quran says. Do you know what the Quran teaches? It was not Isaac whom God required Abraham to sacrifice on Mount Moriah. It was Ishmael. On which spot? The Dome of the Rock. The third holiest site in Islam. Islam teaches that was the site of the offering of Ishmael, not Isaac, for God has forsaken the Jews. And don't be too comfortable. He's also forsaken the Christians. And he has replaced Judaism and Christianity with the supreme religion, which is submission to Allah. That's what Islam means. Islam is an Arabic word meaning submit. When you submit to Allah and this chief prophet, Muhammad, you are now a Muslim. That's what it takes. Have at it if that's what you want. But don't fool yourself into thinking. The Quran is one people's holy book. The Bible is another people's holy book. They essentially say the same thing. No, they say things that are diametrically opposed. This is just a little glimpse. You're going to have to choose. Is this the word of God or not? If it is, it rules out. It nullifies any other religious literature that is contrary to it. So anyway, this is a real problem for Abraham because it's not just his son who he's supposed to sacrifice. 
It's the son of promise. The promise of a future, the promise of a coming Messiah are all encapsulated in the life of this one Isaac, whom now God requires. So Abraham is a little confused by it all, as you can imagine. But something happens, and it's expressed in verse 19. He, Abraham, considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him, Isaac, back as a type. So here's what happened. No such thing as a resurrection had yet occurred in biblical history. Do you know how we think of resurrection? Today in our staff meeting, we looked forward to planning uh, resurrection weekend services, Easter services, many services to accommodate many people, and a marvelous opportunity to celebrate a risen Savior. And this is so uh, familiar to us, we might take it for granted. But the idea of resurrection was rather new in Abraham's day. Nobody had ever done anything but die. Nobody had died, followed by live again. So for Abraham to come up with this notion of resurrection was rather amazing. He considered God is able to resurrect or raise people even from the dead. Now, how did he reach that conclusion? Can you see the words he considered? Now, does your verse 19, does it put it a different way? Anyone have it different? He reasoned. That's excellent. Uh, they essentially, the word he reasoned or he considered is a mathematical term. It's arithmetic. It's when you do numerical calculations. That's what happened here. Pure uh, mathematical process of, of logic. It's an accounting term. So, so, so when it says he considered, it meant Abraham did some accounting. What does that mean? He took account of God's promise. Abraham, I will bless you and the world through your line of descent. Here's the child of promise, Isaac. Abraham took this into account. Then he stacked it up, the promise of God, with now the requirement of God. And the requirement of God seemed to have the potential of nullifying the promise of God. That's our dilemma, too. We read the promises of God in the Bible, but our life experience seems to nullify it. God promises us uh, care and provision and protection, and then we run into all kinds of trouble, and we think these experiences have nullified the promises of God. But Abraham knew at this point, that's, that can't be. It can't be that what God promised would be nullified by what God now is requiring me to go through. Therefore, he resolved the dilemma in his calculations by saying, I know if God promised this living son, the son of promise, but then requires his life, I know God has the capacity to raise him up from death. And all I can say is, holy Toledo. That is major cool. But that isn't how he started. Don't say that's not me. Oh, no, no, no. We all have a starting point. <laughs> We are born in Christ Jesus, anew. Birthed, that's all. Just infants, needy as could be, and go through the developmental stages of our life of faith just like one does the biological stages of growth. He's at a point now 
where he is really coming to be. A marvelously completed and honed down man of faith. Not overnight, through years and years, even including years of faith failure, to get to this point where he could say, I don't have it all figured out, but one thing I know for sure as I do my calculations, God will not say one thing and do another. I've had too many experiences with God to conclude that's the case. He's no hypocrite. What he says he will do with God, his speaking and his doing are absolutely coincidental. He's not a person. A person says something and maybe doesn't do it, but God's not like that. If he says it, he will do it. God said, this is the child that promised. God is requiring his life. I know God can raise him up from death unto, unto new life. It wasn't a blind leap of faith. God does not require any blind leaps of faith. He has grown in his faith experience. As God, a marvelously gentle father from on high, brings the child along. Move, Abraham. It's tough. I know. It'll work out. It did. Birth a child, Abraham. I know. You can't. I can. He did. Give me the child, Abraham. I know. Contrary to reason. Do it. It will work out. You see the progression? Hard, but better to move forward than be stuck. You get saved, and something happens like that. It's called justification. The gavel of the grand judge of all, the Most High God, goes down and says, I have no case against you. Case dismissed. It's a legal pronouncement. You don't grow into it. Boom, it happens like that. Accept the righteous one who died in your behalf, and the Father's gavel goes down and says, now I have no case against you justification. And then we're going to get over here one day, and there's something else. It's going to be another event. It's called glorification. That's when we get new bodies in which sin no longer resides. Do you grow into that? No, no, no. That too is an event. It's not a process. That just happens. When's it going to happen? When Jesus returns for us, when we go to be with him. Obviously, these things are not fit for eternity. So it's justification, an event in time, based on your faith. Glorification, the culmination of it all, when the very presence of sin is removed from our bodies, our body. It doesn't wage war in our members. So what happens in between? Something called sanctification. Now, that's not an event. Oh, I wish it was. That's a process. That's the part that hurts. That's the process of being whittled into God's image. I suppose he could say, Boom, be holy as I am holy. He could, but he doesn't. Why not? How do you extract all the unholiness from us and we survive the operation? It just takes time. You know, the operation was a success. The patient died, that kind of deal. But God doesn't want us. He wants to bring us forth. So there's a pruning, a whittling, little by little, little by little. Not more than we can handle. But this is not an event. This is a process. Abraham was going through it. We go through it. And each step of the way, the Father, lovingly and gently, gives us faith incentives to trust him more, to trust him more, to trust him more. Now, you know how this worked out. God did not require the death of Abraham's son, did he? He provided a substitute. It was a lamb. 
Let me read this to you. Genesis chapter 22. Abraham stretched out his hand. Can you imagine? They took a three-day journey to get to Mount Moriah. Can you imagine the thoughts of the father, the conversation with the son? Father, where is the sacrifice? God will provide my son. Oh, my goodness. Three days must have seemed like an eternity for father and son. Finally, they arrive. Abraham takes out the knife to slay his son on Mount Moriah. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, not once, twice. And he said, Hineni, here I am. <gasps> Isn't it a good thing he wasn't so far from the voice of God that he didn't hear at this point? You see how important it is to walk closely with the Lord Jesus? Here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son, a substitute for his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Yahweh, Yireh, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. And my fellow Christians, you know that God has provided the ultimate lamb. In fact, he did it very near this very place. Mount Moriah, Mount Calvary is very close to Mount Moriah. God never required and accepted the sacrifice of any other human except his only begotten son. <gasps> There's that phrase again. Abraham. You do not have to offer up unto death your only begotten son. I wouldn't do it to you. I do it to me. I offer my only begotten son in the place of yours and yours and yours and yours. A substitute. The Lord has indeed provided. And many here, have trusted this son, this Jesus, as our Savior from sin. Now, that's not so easy because you have to put human pride on the altar. But having trusted Jesus to save us, now we're challenged to do something else. It is to trust Jesus to sustain us. That may be harder. See, the Bible says, as you have received him, so walk in him. How would you receive him? By faith. So that's how you're supposed to walk with him, just as Abraham, Sarah, all the rest in Hebrews 11, by faith. It is one thing to trust Jesus to save, but now we're, having been saved, now we're being called upon to trust Jesus to sustain there's a cancer diagnosis. We must trust Jesus. There's unemployment and financial 
challenge. We must trust Jesus. There's a child on the run from God. We must trust Jesus. There's a government fast becoming an entity unto itself. We must trust Jesus. Sin is on the rise, not just the commission of it, but hearty approval of it. We must trust Jesus. I'm not getting my needs met by those around me who I ought to be able to count on. We must trust Jesus. It is one thing to trust him to save. That having be done, now we're called upon to trust him to sustain. And he helps us to do that along the journey, the faith journey. And it is difficult. But my fellow travelers, as difficult as the journey is, it is far better than being stuck, left to our own devices, left to the way we are, unfinished, unrefined, unredeemed. The master craftsman says, mine is to shape you and form you, to prune you, to remove all deadnesses, all that which deprives you of undistracted devotion to me, so that you look more and more like me, the one who has crafted you, so that in so doing, you give me more and more glory. So my fellow Christians, this is tough stuff to be a follower of the perfect one. Don't tire of it. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Praise him. Thank him for the interest he takes in our lives. Thank him for his involvement and investment. Thank him for salvation from sin. And thank him for sustaining us every step of the way until the culmination of this process of sanctification ends in our glorification when the pruning, purification, perfecting process has reached its grand result, we will see Jesus fall at his feet. Praise him forevermore. And he will say, welcome home. Boy, you really resemble me more than ever now. I must tell you this. Almost nothing I've shared tonight applies to you if you're apart from your creator. I feel like I ought to apologize because you've sat here and none of this applies. This is what happens to those who surrender not to Allah, but to God who came in the form of man. What happens when we surrender our human pride and say, oh God, I bring nothing to the table but indebtedness due to my sin. Will you forgive my debt? Will you cancel it out? Oh, you Lamb of God, on an altar of sacrifice in my place, will your sacrifice redound to my account? I accept it. Your death, your burial, your resurrection by faith.
Will you begin this process of transformation so that one day I can stand before you holy and blameless and beyond reproach? Will you put your eyes upon me and take an interest in me? Will you fashion me so that I reflect you, O God? If you ask him to, he will say gladly, I want to. I came to save you. I am waiting for you to ask me to. Have you asked him to? If you ask Jesus, save me from my sin. Come into my life and change me. Grant me the hope of eternity in your presence. He will. And if you do, then everything we spoke about tonight is as much yours as it was Abraham's and anybody else's in here. Lord Jesus, we bow before you, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Oh God in heaven, in the power of your Holy Spirit, would you convict the one, the two, the three, the more here tonight of sin-caused alienation from you moving them to repentance, accepting you. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Forgive me, a sinner. And begin the process of changing me as you did Abraham. Oh, God, I pray in the power of your Holy Spirit. It has to be that way, doesn't it? You would save those who stand desperately in need of being saved tonight. And then for others who may be standing in a desperate need to believe you for their sustenance. Oh, God, we're not alone. It just feels this way. We're not alone with that medical diagnosis. We're not alone with that financial travail. We're not alone with that family upheaval. We're not alone with that loss of a loved one. No, no, no. How could it be that you who did not spare your only begotten son would not also freely, with him, freely give us all things? You purchased us. You have an investment in us. Oh, God, thank you for bringing us forth just as you did Abraham. Oh, God, help us based upon evidence of your trustworthiness to trust you more. And this we pray. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.